Welcome to a discussion of the relationships, positive or negative, between artificial intelligence and human autonomy. Like our event four weeks ago on ethics and in AI education, this is a seminar associated with the new Institute for Ethics in AI at the University of Oxford. If you're interested in finding links to other related events, both past and forthcoming, together with recordings and podcasts categorized by topic, then go to the philosophy faculty homepage and click on the ethics in AI link. I'm Peter Millikan, Gilbert Ryle Fellow and Professor of Philosophy at Hartford College, Oxford, and I'll be chairing tonight's event. Autonomy is a core value in contemporary Western societies, a value that's often invoked in debates about practical ethics and politics, and indeed lies at the heart of liberal democracy. Understandably, therefore, advocates of artificial intelligence are keen to emphasize how AI systems can enhance our autonomy, giving us easy access to information on which to base our autonomous decisions, enabling us to achieve our personal goals more efficiently, and so on. But on the other hand, there are growing worries that AI systems, in fact, pose a number of serious threats to our autonomy. One prominent example in recent years, not least in various elections and referendums, has been the use of manipulative techniques that take advantage of our weaknesses and biases, leading us to make decisions or to be persuaded of views that might be quite different from those that we would otherwise have adopted. Such tricks have been part of the advertisers' repertoire for generations, of course, but machine learning on our social media lights and so forth makes it possible for us to be individually targeted and exploited, both by salespeople and political groups, in ways that were previously unimaginable. All this raises the question of whether it's possible to harness the considerable power of AI to improve our lives in a way that's fully compatible with respect for autonomy, and whether we need to reconceptualize both the nature and value of autonomy in the digital age. That's the focus of our seminar tonight. I'm delighted to be joined by three Oxford academics who are particularly interested in these topics. First, Karina Prunkle. Karina is research fellow at the Institute for Ethics in AI at the University of Oxford. She's also research affiliate at the Center for Governance of AI in the Future of Humanity Institute again here at Oxford. Karina works on the ethics and governance of AI with a particular focus on autonomy and has both publicly advocated and published on the importance of accountability mechanisms for AI. Welcome, Karina. Hello, it's good to be here. Second, Jonathan Pugh. Jonathan is Senior Research Fellow at the Oxford Hero Center for Practical Ethics researching on how far AI ethics should incorporate traditional conceptions of autonomy and moral status. He recently led a three-year project on the ethics of experimental deep brain stimulation and neurohacking, and in 2020 published uh, a book, Autonomy, Rationality and Contemporary Bioethics uh, with OUP. And he's written on a wide range of ethical topics, but particularly on issues concerning personal autonomy and informed consent. Welcome, Jonathan. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me. 
And third, Jess Morley. Jess is policy lead at Oxford's Data Lab, leading its engagement work to encourage use of modern computational analytics in the NHS and ensuring public trust in healthcare records, uh, notably those developed in response to the COVID pandemic. Jess is also pursuing a related doctorate at the Oxford Internet Institute's Digital Ethics Lab. At te as technical advisor for the Department of Health and Social Care, she co-authored the NHS Code of Conduct for Data-Driven Technologies. Welcome, Jess. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me. Each of our speakers will give a short talk, um, followed by a bit of discussion, and then the next talk and so forth. And the event as a whole will last for 90 minutes, uh, or about that. So we'll have plenty of time for discussion, and you're very welcome to offer your own questions to the speakers. Indeed, you're encouraged to do so. So please feel free at any time to pose questions um, by typing them into the comments box on YouTube. I'll be noting these as we go and posing them to the speakers at various points. So the sooner you get your questions in, the more opportunities there will be, there will be for having them addressed. Okay, I hope that's all clear. And now we'll move to our first speaker, Karina. Uh, so Karina, as I mentioned, is research fellow at the Institute for Ethics in AI, um, research affiliate at the Center for Governance of AI. And Karina, you're one of our new appointments under the Ethics in AI initiative at Oxford. Uh, so it's, it's great to have you here. Um, I've noted that you're a strong advocate for accountability in AI development, and you've addressed the Mexican Senate on this topic. So that sounds particularly interesting. And you were featured as one of the 35 under 35 future leaders by the Barcelona Center for International Affairs and the Banco Santander. So over to you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, Peter, for having me. So my task today is to provide an overview over human autonomy and the various ways that AI might affect it. And autonomy really, really, as Peter already mentioned, is one of our core values in our society. And it very broadly refers to our effective capacity to make decisions and to live our lives according to our own choosing and according to our own standards. So basically autonomy points to our capacity of being self-governing agents. And the question we're exploring today in the seminar is whether AI systems might actually threaten this ability or this capacity, and if so, in what sense they might do. Now, the first point I'd like to make is that when we try to assess the impacts of AI on human autonomy, I think it's really important to be clear on what aspect or, or what dimension of autonomy one is interested in. So for example, one possible dimension concerns the effects of AI systems on our ability to make decisions, and especially our ability to make decisions that are in some important sense our own and that are not subject to distorting external forces. And here are some of the main issues that arise in the context of AI, as Peter already pointed out, are online manipulation and deception, which clearly are cases where human autonomy is undermined by the use of AI systems. But also more generally, there is the question of how AI systems might affect and shape our preferences and beliefs. So, for example, by now there are quite a few studies that show how people change their preferences 
to match the recommendations they are presented with by, an, by a recommendation algorithm. And the case certainly has been made that this, to some extent, uh, to some extent, fundamentally undermines our autonomy. Um, so, I mean, this is one of these cases where it's probably a bit more complicated than this, because in order to show that these systems actually undermine autonomy, one would also need to show how this would be different from ordinary cases of preference adaptation that we experience on a on a day-to-day -day basis when we ask our friends, uh, you know, which movies they recommend, for example. Now, I just mentioned the potential of AI systems to influence our beliefs and our decisions, but there is another aspect of autonomy, which has to do rather with the execution of those decisions uh, instead of the formation of the decisions. And I remember reading an article several years ago, which was during the very early stages of social robot development, and there it was the case that some Japanese engineers tried to build a robot, which was supposed to display affection and to give lots of hugs to people. Um, and for some reason, the robot became very, very eager. And I mean, very, very eager up to the point that it would not let the engineer leave the room um, by sim simply constantly hugging her and not letting go. And so now this is a case where the engineer clearly had made up her mind about leaving the room. Um, so she's clearly made the decision, but the robot was actively preventing her from executing that decision. And a lot of the ethics guidelines on responsible AI actually bring up this dimension of autonomy and emphasize that human beings need to remain in control of AI systems, and especially that they need to be in control over, uh, over whether, when, and how tasks are outsourced to AI systems. Now, the question of control is especially a concern that has been raised in the context of autonomous AI systems, um, but also in the context of decision-making algorithms. Uh, and here, the worry is very much that the decisions um, of importance, if decisions of importance are outsourced to AI systems, then humans or users might not be able to reclaim this decision-making Okay, so finally, another concern that is sometimes raised in the context of AI and human autonomy is that through this process of outsourcing an increasing amount of tasks to AI systems, we actually make ourselves dependent on the technology. And as a result of this dependence, we might lose our ability to act autonomously. Now, these types of arguments, I think it's important that we're uh, a bit careful to not equate human autonomy with merely independence. And feminist philosophers, for example, have quite rightly pointed out that no human is fully self-sufficient and independence and self-sufficiency particularly seem ill-chosen as values that is worth uh, striving for. And thus as part of, um, our, of, a, of a conception of autonomy. And I also think it's important to note that dependence on technology neither is a bad thing, nor does it imply a lessening of our autonomy. So a wheelchair user, for example, uh, could be very dependent on their wheelchair, but it seems, it seems rather misguided to say that as a result of this dependence, they would be less autonomous. And in fact, if anything, I think the wheelchair uh, probably increases their autonomy because it provides them with means to move around everywhere else. Now this brings me to my second and last point, which is that the answer to the question of whether or not AI threatens human autonomy 
really very highly depends on the context and the AI system in question. So there is no, there exists unfortunately no one fits all approach and neither are there one fits all policy responses. So for example, it makes a big difference whether manipulation by AI systems is intentional or whether it's unintentional. So Cambridge Analytica, the Cambridge Analytica scandal um, is an example where the attempt to manipulate voters through targeted political advertisement was very much, much intentional. So it was intended by those deploying uh, the algorithm. Manipulation through, let's say, biased Google search rankings or through uh, YouTube video recommendations, uh, if they take place, uh, in many cases can be unintentional and can be a side effect of the recommendation algorithm question. So that's more a technical pro problem or a problem of misspecification of, um, of the goal. Um, of the of the goal of the algorithm, but the the kind of governance responses that we need to implement in order to address these two cases of manipulation. Let's say both of them are clearly manipulation, and there's of course also a lot of um, debate about what counts as manipulation. Let's assume these are two cases of ma manipulation. Then the two the government responses would need to be uh, would need to look very different for the case of Cambridge Analytica and for the case of let's say biased uh, Google search rankings. And similarly, just to, just to stay with the example of manipulation for the moment, from a moral point of view, not all cases of manipulation are equally morally reprehensible. So for example, it makes a big difference whether I am nudged into buying a more expensive car insurance or whether I am nudged into paying my taxes by the state. So, and similarly, in the case of AI, it just makes a moral difference whether my healthcare app nudges me to undergo treatment or whether my heyday app nudges me to spend even more time playing silly games on my iPhone. And so, again, we really need to, we really need to assess these applications on a case-by-case -case basis and be, be especially sensitive um, to the context they are deployed in. And I'm very glad that uh, the remainder of the seminar is dedicated to explore a very specific case of AI and autonomy. And it would also become very clear that even then there remains plenty of room for disagreement. Okay, so to wrap up, I'd just like to uh, briefly reiterate the two main points I just made. The first was that autonomy as a concept is terribly ambiguous and uh, that we need to be clear about what aspect of autonomy we are talking about before we can even begin to ask the question of whether AI poses a threat to it. The second point was that even then, we have to be sensitive to content and just have to accept that there is no silver bullet that allows us to assess all possible threats to autonomy at once. And thank you very much. Mute. Thank you, Karina. Uh, there we are. Uh, very interesting. Could I just uh, press you on a, a couple of questions arising from what you said? Sure. So <clears throat> you gave the example of um, human versus machine autonomy. You gave the example of a wheelchair user. Now, I think it's, it is quite tempting to think that in any situation, there's a certain, certain total amount of autonomy which is divided up between the various agents involved. So that if you have more autonomy for the, the automated system, then that's less autonomy for the user. And somebody might press that a bit further with the wheelchair user. They, they might say, look, the wheelchair 
increases the autonomy of the user, but only to the extent that it's under their control. As soon as you start putting AI systems into the wheelchair that mean that it's making decisions, then that's reducing the autonomy of the user. So they, they might try to suggest that actually there kind of is a limited amount of autonomy to go around and therefore more autonomy for the automatic system means less for us. How would you respond? Yeah, so first of all, I'd say that there is a fundamental difference between what we consider to be human autonomy and what we consider to be system autonomy or autonomy as used in the context of autonomous systems. In the human case, autonomy is an intrinsic value and uh, you know, it plays an important role for moral agency, responsibility, and so on. It's something to strive for. Now, in the system case, there is at least no such uh, there is at least no such moral agency, um, and so there is no autonomy in this sense. And autonomy more refers to something more like independence. So independence from human operators, or also in the case of um, of learning algorithms or machine learning. Uh, it refers to their ability to learn on the basis of experience. Now, so basically this means that autonomy in the case of machines is not an intrinsic value, but it's like at most an instrumental one. Now, by suggesting that there is some kind of a shared amount of autonomy and that there might be even a trade-off between uh, our autonomy and the autonomy uh, of, of the system, we're basically putting human autonomy and system autonomy onto one, one and the same level. And um, this, I mean, as I, as I just pointed out, cannot be right because the two refer to very different things and fulfill very different functional roles as well. So I do think that this idea of a trade-off is somewhat misguided. And, and I think uh, you, you brought up the wheelchair example. Um, I agree with the amount of control, but then um, again, we, this question of control is often very underspecified. It's very unclear what amount of control we'd actually we'd actually want in these cases. So, um, for example, you might want to be able uh, for a car to be able to brake and to be able to stop or to choose a particular um, to choose a particular route. Um, otherwise, you could say, "Well, I'm not having the autonomy to steer the car." But in other cases. These, these kind of issues would never come up if you enter a roller coaster. You don't have the you don't want to control uh, the roller coaster to to stop or to to you know to to leave the roller coaster. So um, yeah, so, so maybe maybe just to wrap up, this question of control is very it's very contentious in itself because it's unclear who's supposed to have what control over the system. So uh, yeah, things get very complicated. But uh, coming back to the trade-off, I do think that there is. Uh, that there is no such trade-off between the autonomy of human beings and the autonomy of Right. Thank you very much. Um, can I just follow up just a bit on, on the concept of um, human autonomy? And you say that's an intrinsic value, which indeed I think most of us would sign up to. But is that um, a value that's geographically and historically universal? Or some might think it's a relatively local thing for modern Western cultures. Yeah, so this is a, a very, a very uh, a criticism one hears very often. The idea that autonomy is uh, has this Western, overly individualistic flavor um, that puts the individual at the center of action. And I think here, um, philosophy, and in particular, Western philosophy, 
actually has moved on quite a lot and has moved away from this individualistic notion of autonomy. So on the one hand, there are now a lot of um, conceptions of, of relational autonomy that are emerging from the, uh, coming from the feminist literature on autonomy that put very much the, relation, the relational nature of autonomy at the heart saying, you know, we're all people, we're all embedded in our society. We are all reliant on our social interactions. So autonomy should be considered as a relational concept. And then furthermore, there are also so-called procedural accounts of autonomy that identify uh, an action or a person as autonomous in virtue of the procedure by which the person has, has made the decision or holds certain beliefs. And these accounts are also value neutral. And so basically there are no values baked into these accounts of, of autonomy. They can be, um, and, and I think are successfully deployed across cultures. And it seems that also when you, when you ask people, say in countries like China, who are known to have a more uh, collective mentality and, and, and very different uh, way of thinking about individual action and, and, and social action, even there, you would find that these notions of autonomy uh, do find resonance and that people would actually ask questions. Well, thank you very much indeed. We will now move on to our second speaker. See you later, Karina. Uh, we'll move on to our second speaker, uh, Jonathan Pugh. Um, welcome back, Jonathan. As I <laughs> mentioned when I introduced Jonathan, he's Senior Research Fellow at the Oxford Your Hero Centre for Practical Ethics. Uh, one thing I said then that was that you, you, you had a project on the ethics of experimental deep brain stimulation, neurohacking, hacking the software incorporated into brain computer interfaces. Can you say just a little bit more about that? Sounds intriguing. Yeah, it was a very interesting project. Um, so over the course of that um, grant project, I was collaborating with uh, experts in, in neurosurgery and uh, cybersecurity. And there's some emerging evidence now to suggest that it would be possible to hack the, the wireless elements that are incorporated into brain stimulation devices. So uh, historically, it's been established that it's possible to hack um, pacemakers, cardiac pacemakers. Um, and now that wireless systems are being incorporated into things like deep brain stimulation, this raises some interesting questions philosophically, uh, as well as just generally from society. Do, about do, do you mean... Do you mean hack for evil purposes? Some third party interfering with it? it? It technically could be possible. So there have been studies showing that it would be possible to hack a cardiac pacemaker to potentially stop it from functioning. Um, that hasn't yet been fully established with neurohacking, but the technical possibility is certainly something that researchers are, are interested in and certainly worried about. So there's a lot of interest in how we can develop uh, the security of these devices uh, far more robustly. Oh, well, very interesting. And today you're going to talk to us about a particular example uh, of autonomy or lack of or threats to in healthcare. But you're, you're more on the positive side. Uh, I think so. But uh, <laughs> we'll right. see how we develop over the course of the evening. Good. Over to you. OK, thank you, Peter. Let me just uh, share my screen. Good. OK, hopefully that's that's come up. Uh, so Karina's given us a fantastic introduction to the various ways in which we can think about autonomy and, and how that's implicated in AI systems. Uh, we decided to look at a particular case study to focus our discussion. We're going to use the, the study of um, mHealth tools. And I think that's a really interesting case to think about because these mHealth tools, which I'll introduce a little later, 
represents something of a middle ground, if you like, between questions in the burgeoning field of AI ethics and the field of uh, bioethics, which is perhaps a little more well-established and which is my home discipline. So in the first part of the talk, I'm going to say a little bit about how I think about autonomy in bioethics. And fortunately, Karina and I agree on, on most things, so I can move through that fairly quickly. But I'm going to present a, a visualization, if you like, of how you can uh, view the concept of autonomy and draw on that to make some arguments in favor of the idea that mHealth tools can be an, a an AI system which might be used to enhance autonomy. So let's start with that. So uh, as Karina mentioned, the fundamental concept that we aim to capture with autonomy is this property of self-governance. One thing I would like to um, add to that is this point that we can think about autonomy in two different ways. Um, we can first talk about it at a local level. So we might be interested in whether an individual is autonomous with respect to a particular decision or a particular action. But we can also be interested in whether an individual is autonomous over extended periods of time, uh, perhaps with respect to a long-term goal or project. Now, one reason it's important to notice this distinction is that sometimes um, our global autonomy can demand quite different things of us than our individual autonomy. Uh, sometimes when we're left to our own devices about making decisions about how to achieve our long-term goals, uh, we might in fact be less successful than if we perhaps outsource some of those decisions. So that's gonna be a really important point, I think, for thinking about the, the overall implications of AI for autonomy. Now, as Karina uh, suggested in, in her presentation, there are two, at least two dimensions we can talk about when we think about autonomy. Uh, now in bioethics, there's a, a fair tradition which really emphasizes the importance of freedom and ability to um, self-governance, to autonomy. So the key question here is gonna be, am I able to act on the basis of my decisions? And that's again, gonna be really important when we think about the implications of AI uh, for the primary reason that AI systems promise to hugely enhance our abilities to do the things that we want to do. Um, Luciano Floridi and colleagues captured this idea really nicely, I think in a recent paper where they wrote that, uh, put at the service of human intelligence, AI can enhance human agency. We can do more, better and faster thanks to AI. And that's really an important point, I think, coming into this conversation. But of course, again, drawing on Karina's earlier presentation, that's not, that all, that's not all that autonomy amounts to. As well as being able to do the things we want, it's also crucially important that we're autonomous with respect to our decisions about what it is that we want to do in the first place. And there are some different elements that can feed into that. Um, of course, in order to make autonomous decisions, I need to have sufficient understanding of what my options are like. That's a point that's familiar from the medical context. It provides the foundation for the doctrine of informed consent. And there's also potentially this reflective element. We might think that autonomous decision-making must be grounded by motivational states that somehow reflect my values. Now, once we have that quite general and somewhat basic framework in mind, we can, we can begin to see how different threats to autonomy feed into the different elements involved. So deception and informational manipulation, it seems to me are ways in which we can undermine uh, the level of understanding that autonomy might require. And as Karina mentioned in AI, that's going to be a particularly important 
source of threats to autonomy. We've seen the prevalence of uh, fake news, the development of filter bubbles and echo chambers really pose threats to the kind of understanding that autonomous decision-making requires. Other kinds of interference uh, perhaps target the reflective element of autonomy, perhaps nudging us into making decisions we wouldn't reflectively endorse or inducing addictive forms of behavior. So I'm just going to reiterate Karina's uh, conclusion absolutely. Uh, the answer we can give to this general question has to be, it depends. Uh, AI systems can both enhance and diminish these different aspects of autonomy. Now, what I hope visualizing that framework will, will help us to do is to bring out this point that the very same application of AI can enhance some elements of autonomy whilst at the same time threatening others. So I think with respect to these applications, there can be trade-offs about the kind of effects they're having. So with that preamble in mind, let's now turn to the, the case study. Uh, of M Health Tools. So very broadly speaking, uh, M Health Tools are mobile and wireless technologies that support the achievement of health objectives. And these can take a wide array of, um, of forms. I'm going to use just two examples uh, for the purposes of the presentation. Uh, first, uh, Fitbits, which I'm sure many of you are probably familiar with. After all, there are roughly 28 million active global users of these things. Uh, so a Fitbit pictured there, there's a small uh, bracelet essentially that you can use uh, that can monitor your levels of physical activity, counting the number of steps you take, for instance, and also certain health parameters such as your heart rate. Other M Health tools are targeted more specifically at individuals living with particular medical conditions. So the My Sugar app there is targeted at individuals living with diabetes. It allows users to monitor their blood glucose levels and also to log their eating activity. Now, the earliest iterations of these mHealth tools were essentially monitoring devices, but they are increasingly becoming more and more sophisticated, and they're beginning to integrate AI systems so that they can tailor personalized recommendations to their users. And the more sophisticated they become, the more likely it is they're going to raise some of the issues about autonomy that we've already seen uh, coming up in our discussion so far. Now, what I want to do is draw on the framework I talked about a, a few minutes ago to give some reasons for thinking why mHealth tools might be the kind of uh, AI system which could potentially be used to enhance our autonomy. Uh, later on, uh, when Jess gives her presentation, I think she's going to, to raise some points why I might be a little misguided about this, but hopefully I can give a positive case in favor first. So the first argument draws on this point that mHealth tools, it seems, could be used to enhance the user's understanding. Uh, as I mentioned in the framework earlier, an autonomous decision maker is typically going to be an informed decision maker. In order to make autonomous decisions, we have to have some understanding of what our options are like. We need to know how we can go and apply our values in the world. And when they're functioning properly, mHealth tools can give us a range of information which might be really quite useful for how we make decisions concerning our own healthcare. Uh, so Fitbits, of course, can give you real-time information about your physical activity and your, your heart rate. And that can really be useful when you're trying to plan uh, an efficient exercise regime. Of course, we are now fully aware that uh, physical activity and exercise is hugely important for our overall health. Now, of course, that argument does have to be caveated in a number of ways, and one crucial way is that it assumes that the information that we are uh, receiving from mHealth tools is always going to be accurate. 
And now that's perhaps a slightly problematic assumption at the moment because there are a number of reasons why consumer grade um, monitoring devices won't necessarily give you highly accurate information. So that is absolutely a caveat. However, the hope might be that this is a technological bug which over time could be, um, could be overcome. And the general point remains that if we can enhance understanding using these tools, so much the better for individual autonomy. The second argument moves away from uh, the autonomy of our decisions over to the more practical dimension of autonomy I mentioned earlier. So one of the big obstacles we face when trying to achieve long-term health objectives is maintaining adherence to healthy behaviors. Again, let me just focus on, on the case of exercise. We all know that um, regular exercise is important for health, but many of us don't particularly enjoy it. Uh, vigorous exercise can be a fairly unpleasant experience. So one of the, the key goals of trying to get people to engage in more physical activity is trying to ensure that we can maintain adherence. And so what we see in these more sophisticated M Health tools is that they have started to use motivational strategies to, to help ensure that users are achieving the long-term goals that made them sign up for the tool in the first place. So Fitbit, for example, will now offer badges once you've passed certain uh, milestones, almost literally in this case. Uh, the My Sugar app uses an even more kind of um, complex uh, motivational strategy, if you like. They um, gamify uh, defeating diabetes. So they, uh, the app um, displays diabetes as a monster that you have to try and tame by uh, achieving certain healthy behaviors. So there is a sense in which these strategies can help users achieve their global health goals. Remember, I made that distinction between local and global autonomy. But again, there's a caveat here. Um, and this again draws in some of the remarks Karina made. We might worry that the motivational strategies that these tools are using are perhaps manipulative at the local level. They're getting users to engage in individual decisions and actions, which they perhaps wouldn't reflectively endorse. Now, I think there are two really important questions we have to ask here. The first is, are the motivational strategies themselves manipulative? Uh, are they nudges that circumvent our reflective capacities? That's perhaps a, a question that we can come back to in discussion. But the second uh, question, which I think is equally important, but perhaps overlooked sometimes, is we have to ask, how much does this matter from the perspective of autonomy? And this is where the distinction between local autonomy and global autonomy becomes really quite important. I mentioned from the perspective of our global health goals, um, these motivational strategies might be highly effective in getting us or helping us to achieve the goals that we want to achieve. Um, and so we might feel that if there are problems at the local level, these perhaps from the perspective of autonomy could be outweighed by the, the manner in which they provide a boost to our global autonomy. The third and final argument I want to, to highlight is uh, what relates to this narrative of empowerment that has surrounded M Health tools. Now, Jess is going to go into a lot more detail about this, uh, but the general idea I take it is that these tools have been marketed in a way to, which is suggested they're going to empower patients, to give them responsibility for their own healthcare. Now, one thing I think is interesting about that is Generally, when we think about autonomy, we tend to think that giving people more responsibility to make their own choices is one way of fostering their autonomy. 
at that point will be familiar to anyone who's been involved in raising young children. We try and foster their capacity for autonomy by giving them more and more decisions as they grow older. How applicable is that to the healthcare context? Well, I think this is something we're, we're going to talk about. I think one of the interesting things about this development is in medical ethics traditionally, the patient's autonomy has to a large extent been the responsibility of the physician. Um, part of their duty of care is to ensure the patient is able to make autonomous decisions about their own healthcare. Perhaps these mHealth tools are one way in which we're finding a shift away from that um, physician-based responsibility for patient autonomy. That's an interesting development and we have to weigh it against the, the preferences of those who perhaps don't wish to have that kind of responsibility. With responsibility for healthcare choices comes accountability and there are of course problems with that. So Jess is going to raise some very interesting points about this narrative of empowerment. Um, I would suggest there is one way of viewing that narrative through a lens in which it can be understood as enhancing autonomy in one quite general sense. So that they're the arguments I wanted to present and I'll, um, I'll now hand back over to Peter. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Oh, wait a minute. Sorry about that, <laughs> technical glitch. Uh, thank you very much indeed, Jonathan. That was, that was very interesting. Could, could I um, ask you to explore just a couple of questions that, that, that might help to uh, shed light on, on, on some of what you're saying? Sure. Do you, do you think in general that providing users with ac more accurate information, for example, generated by AI systems, will that pretty much always enhance their autonomy? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, Peter. Um, I think traditionally in, in medical ethics, there has been this view that as, as soon as we can get information to patients, then the more the better. Um, but we've seen that's actually, of course, hugely problematic, and that is going to be exacerbated in the context of AI. The first problem is the sheer amount of content that we can give to, to users with AI systems. You know, that these systems can generate huge amounts of data and providing all of that to uh, users would simply overwhelm them. So the first problem we're going to face is that we need some way of filtering the information. And as soon as we introduce filtering, um, we introduce the possibility also for some kind of influence. Our decision about how to filter the information we give to users is always going to involve some kind of value judgment. So that's one problem about the content of the information we provide. The second is the manner in which information is presented. And again, this is a, a problem that has become more and more apparent in medical ethics over recent years. It is extremely difficult to present seemingly even you know, very scientific medical information in an entirely value neutral way. Uh, so the framing effect is a good example of this. You can influence the weight that information is afforded in an individual's decision-making uh, by the, ma the manner in which you present it. So providing information is not always going to enhance autonomy for the simple reason that simply providing information doesn't entail enhancing understanding. Right. Thank you very much. That's raising some really interesting issues. Uh, I'm going to postpone a, a follow-up question there until everybody's on board, because I think that I'll be interested to see what you all have to say about it. Different question. Um, AI obviously is a new thing in the world. It's, it's making a, you know, a, a lot of uh, noise, but it, it's not the first technology that's raised the spectre of manipulation. 
does it raise fundamentally new questions? Though? Yeah, I, it's it, it's a question that I think about a lot, to be honest. Um, in some ways, I think the answer is no. Um, and you, you touched on this, Peter, in your introductory remarks, because AI, AI systems, when they do influence or manipulate us, are taking advantage of the same flaws in our decision-making that many other technologies have already taken advantage of. And you alluded to the fact that advertisers have known about these flaws in our decision-making for many, many years now. So in that way, the, the forms of influence aren't necessarily new, but the threat posed by AI systems is, I think, undeniably greater. Uh, the forms of manipulative interference are more pervasive. And they're also likely to be much more effective uh, because of their highly targeted and personalized nature. And again, that's, that's something you alluded to. Now, for me, I think that raises interesting questions about manipulation, but perhaps the more theoretical question it raises is that it draws this really quite tight link between the concepts of privacy and autonomy. Uh, to this point in practical ethics generally, and, and certainly in medical ethics, these two moral concepts of autonomy and privacy have really been separated as quite discrete ethical concepts. Uh, and now in theory, that might still be true, but I think what we're learning that is that in the practice of AI, these two concepts are going to be much more symbiotic. So any investigation into one really has to pay close attention uh, to the other. Yeah, very interesting. Um, you may be aware we had an event recently, which was a a launch event for my colleague Carissa Velizzi's book, Privacy is Power. Uh, you can Absolutely. <laughs> so Carissa, Carissa was my old office mate. So we, we oh, had, right, some, right, we've yes. had some great conversations about this. Okay, so, I, so you will have discussed lots about this. Yes. And right, it's a fantastic well, book. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, these are interesting issues and they're so interlocked, aren't they? Which is one of the, the strengths of the ethics and AI initiative here that all these things are coming together in a, a really fruitful way. Well, thank you very much, Jonathan. And now we move on to Jess, Jess Morley. Hello, Jess, welcome back. Hi, Peter. Uh, as I mentioned when introducing you to start with, your policy lead, the Data Lab at the University of Oxford, and you're also doing a doctorate in the Digital Ethics Lab. Um, but previously, you were technology advisor at the Department of Health and Social Care and the AI subject matter expert at NHSX, with a tongue twister. <laughs> and you co-authored the NHS Code of Conduct for Data-Driven Health and Care Technologies. I, I'd love to hear just a word about the contrast between working in the NHS and then coming and doing research at Oxford? Yeah, it's an interesting one. One, one sort of led to the other, I guess. Um, so I had been in Oxford previously um, to do my undergrad, and then I went and worked for the NHS straight away. I was supposed to be there for six weeks, and then I ended up staying for about six years. Um, but I was, it was when we were developing all of these policies with regards to how do you use data and in particular how to use machine learning and AI in healthcare context responsibly that I sort of was like I'm not really sure we have enough knowledge in policy making settings in order to be able to make these decisions and so my solution to that was to come back to Oxford and sort of try and generate some of the knowledge and understanding myself um, 
I suppose the contexts are slightly different when when you're in an academic context, you have a lot of freedom of thought. So you can almost think in a constraintless matter uh, manner, and you can't really do that when you're in a policymaking context because there are so many constraints that you have to think about. You have to think about stakeholders engagement. You have to think about interlocking policies and how does this interact with that. You have to think about you know relationships between other departments, um, and you also have to balance quite complicated trade-offs. Like uh, as we've seen throughout the coronavirus pandemic, you know trade-offs between promoting public health versus promoting the economy. And sometimes these are presented as dichotomous and they're not necessarily, but you don't have to think about those kinds of things so detailed in, in an academic context. It's still, it's okay to just think about one concept and think about it in a quite narrow way. Um, so I suppose that's the main difference. Yes, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, you're getting both perspectives uh, to a to a rather extreme degree. I mean, philosophy is one of the subjects that perhaps which promotes thinking all sorts of weird and wonderful things and you know strange thought experiments, perhaps more than others. And then on the other hand, healthcare must be one of the areas where you're most constrained uh, by considerations of cost and politics and public acceptability and all sorts of other things. Anyway, over to you, uh, Jess. Thank you. Let me share my screen. Right, so hopefully you can all see that. So I'm going to basically pick up on the point that Jonathan made right at the end of that talk in response to a question from Peter that information doesn't automatically enhance a person's understanding and explore why this has implications for autonomy in particular with regards to the empowerment narrative with how mHealth tools or health apps are positioned in the world of policymaking as part of an overarching health strategy. Basically, I'm going to be the killjoy for the next 10 or 15 minutes or so, and then we can have a discussion about whether or not I'm right to be the killjoy or whether I should in fact be more positive. This is all largely based on paper that I wrote with Luciano Faridi, who Jonathan also um, mentioned, called The Limits of Empowerment. Uh, so to start with, I think it's, it's important to know that the empowerment narrative is very heavily entrenched in policymaking documents throughout the NHS and has been probably for about the last 10 or 15 years, but it's become considerably more pronounced in the last five years as we have seen the rise in the use of wearables and apps, etc. And this is a quote from the previous Secretary of State. So this um, Jeremy Hunt, not rather than Matt Hancock, making a speech in September in 2017. And as you can see, that latter half of that sentence is an accompanying all of this is likely to be a big shift in power from doctor to patients as patients use technology to put themselves in the driving seat of their own healthcare destiny. And this really sums up the argument that's underpinning the empower the person narrative, this idea that if we give people empowerment, empowering tools and we give them access to, to more information and we give them access to algorithms that can make their healthcare personalized and predictive and preventative, um, then they will be better enhanced, their autonomy will be enhanced and they will be better equipped to take care of their, of their own health. This idea isn't new. Um, it's kind of been around this idea of empowering people to take hold of their own healthcare has existed since about the 1970s. You can see in that graph, um, it starts to pick up around the 1970s. 
and it was present in sort of neoliberal health policy and but it's really boomed in the late 1990s and the, and the early 2000s in part in reaction to the sustainability crisis faced by the NHS. Um, so the NHS in the 1990s, 2000 and especially now, the population is vastly different to what it was dealing with in sort of 70 or so years ago. We have people who are much older, we have people with much more complicated health needs, people are, tend to be dealing with chronic conditions rather than acute conditions, so things that require long-term care rather than acute, short-term, very serious illnesses or injuries. And that started to put pressure on the resources of the healthcare system. And so this started to prompt the government and policymakers to pivot towards a proactive paradigm of healthcare. So rather than being reactive when something, somebody was sick, encourage the shift towards healthcare that is sometimes known as P4 medicine. So personalised, preventative, predictive and participatory. And it's often in that context that we hear arguments about the use of AI. So AI will know everything about you and it will be able to predict when you're going to get sick and it will predict based on your digital phenotype and all of the information around you as well as your genetics. And we will basically be able to in intervene and stop everyone from getting sick. And this is an argument you can follow it through and it becomes quite extreme in some cases, but it's particularly relevant for the use of health apps. This idea that the data is generated only on you, it's your personal information and it's giving you personalized recommendations. And this shift in this idea between reactive to preventative medicine sort of coincided with the internet becoming commercially available. And this led to info-liberal arguments. So this idea which is partly the idea that Jonathan was just picking up on, that the idea of giving patients more access to information in a sort of gatekeeperless way, so democratizing access to, to information via the internet, would lead to the emergence of what's known as a generation of expert patients. And these patients would be have a greater level of self-esteem, they would have, they would be empowered to be active participants in their own healthcare, and it would ultimately result in them having a better quality of life. And this boom of the arrival of mHealth and the internet, the later adoptions of the internet, the mobile web, and particularly wearables has resulted in this empowerment narrative taking off even more than it ever did before. But the problem is in all of these policy documents ranging from sort of early, early uh, narratives, even from the sort of late nineties of the national program for IT right through until last year's or 2019's um, sort of their next step of the NHS strategy is that it never actually says how does the data empower people? We take the word empowerment to literally mean a transference of power in order to be able to, you know, be the person who was responsible for taking care of your own health. How does this actually work? And that's when we start to see that there are limitations to this argument. So here you can see two little icon reflections of me. There's this self and there's my data double. And this is why I find the context of healthcare and AI is so interesting because healthcare is very physical. It's very kinesthetic. It's like, I understand my body. I can touch my body. I can feel it. I know if I have taken some medicine, I know if I've had an operation. It's something that you have quite a defined and a group. You can quite easily conceptualize it in your mind. 
the problem with AI and with M health tools is they're not necessarily operating on your physical self. They're operating on your digital self. And the idea is with this empowerment narrative is you use what I term the digital medical gaze, this idea of, oh, I looked at my phone. My phone has told me that I took 10,000 steps today, but I could probably take 15,000 tomorrow and that will make me better. Or, oh, I, I ate too much chocolate today and maybe I should eat some more broccoli tomorrow. It's this, this idea that you look down at your health, your phone, you're looking at a version of your data self. Your data self highlights to you the limits of your health and then it automatically triggers a response in you to make better your healthcare. But there are many potential barriers to that actually working. For one thing, we don't know who set the baseline. So you can only be unhealthy or healthy depending on what the definition of healthy is. And that is always going to be a value-laden decision. There is no such thing as a neutral definition of what weight is, what, a, what the perfect weight is, for example, um, or what is the perfect diet. These things all have value-laden like implications. But it's not often clear to people that those decisions have been made in a value-based way. And it's also not clear to people what those baselines are. The 10,000 steps thing, for example, is largely based on the logic, it's better for people to move more. There is no real scientific evidence to suggest that 10,000 steps is the ultimate outcome and then the peak number of steps that people should be taking. If you've taken 10,000 steps a day, every day of your life, taking 10,000 steps tomorrow is not necessarily going to make you fitter or make you lose weight. And we have to expose the fact that these things can be politically driven. There might be political reasons, there might be nefarious reasons why one baseline is set for another. And they also should be aware of the fact that sometimes these, these baselines are biased. Often we talk about the fact that healthcare data or AI algorithms can be biased. We don't always talk about the fact that healthcare is often biased now. We know more about people who use healthcare systems more. We also know more about people who have been prioritized in healthcare system more. And we often know more about people who look like me rather than people who might have different, different colors of skin, who might come from different ethnicities. And all of those baselines based on me get translated into M house tools and are used to police people's behavior who come from different contexts, who have different bodies, who have different health needs and who have different cultural contexts. And yet at the same time, we are still arguing that they are being empowered to improve their own health based on the baseline over which they had no control. And you never see this happening. It's all happening on your data self. It's never happening on your physical self. And this undermines what can be called your integrity of self. So do I understand what is happening to me, what decisions are being made about me and why I am being nudged to move in a particular way? And so ultimately these M health tools and apps are effectively policing people's behavior. And those values become internalized constantly and reinforced by push notifications and buzzes and other gamification features, all of which are supposed to be motivating, but are actually making people complicit in their own self-surveillance. And you are basically enslaving people to this idea that I must improve myself constantly rather than empowering them because healthy has become institutionalized. The idea of your behavioral norms obligates people to constantly improve their health. So you're never healthy, you're always somewhat sick. 
you are always somewhat incomplete. And you are always supposed to be striving for continuous improvement. Oh, you can do 10 burpees. Can you do 12? Can you do 15? Can you run a marathon? Now, can you run an ultra marathon? Can you eat only green vegetables and kale rather than just green vegetables, kale, and maybe a chocolate biscuit? We're always trying to improve people. And so rather than enhancing people's autonomy, what we can actually see is M Health tools being seen as hyper nudging. They are reducing people's autonomy and altering and replacing this idea of self-improvement by libertarian paternalistic algorithms that alter the presentation of the digital self to nudge people into taking predetermined actions which they have not themselves decided to take. And they have been made about policing them against baselines which individual people were not involved in taking or deciding or knowing whether they were the right ones for them. So, this comes to the point that Karina was making right at the beginning. What is the difference between procedural and relational autonomy? M health apps and this idea of empower the person are largely based on the procedural definition of autonomy, which is a very narrow definition of autonomy. And it puts all of the attention on the decision. So I have empowered a person to know that potentially their behavior is not very healthy and that they could make a difference they could make a decision to take a different type of behavior and that would make them healthier. But this has got nothing to do with whether or not that person actually has the ability and therefore the power to make that change. Let's give an example. If we tell someone you should be breaking more F, you should be doing more exercise, we don't know if that person has access to a gym. We don't know if they have small children at home that they cannot leave if they need to go for a run. We don't know similarly about people's foods. Do people have easy access to fruits and vegetables and fresh food or is the only food that is accessible and affordable to them a McDonald's and a Mars bar? We don't know. All of these things are what's sometimes known as the social determinants of health over which people have limited control and are really the responsibilities of public health programs and you cannot be saying and suggesting that people's autonomy has been enhanced if we have told them and policed them and made them feel guilty and responsible for their own ill health through these nudging hyper nudging apps if they actually have no power and ability to change it instead all we are making that person feel is an overwhelming level of guilt and responsibility which can in fact alter their autonomy particularly if they don't really understand why they have been told to take this action in the first place because it has been done on their data self not on their physical self. And so ultimately these things could in fact being really limiting on the person's autonomy because this is acting on procedural autonomy. And really what we should be talking about is relational autonomy. So people's ability to make autonomous decisions in their wider context and mHealth apps and apps have no real implications for this wider relational autonomy but we make them feel like they do and that undermines people's autonomy instead and so finally to talk to some of the points that jonathan was making about informed consent informed consent is at the heart of ethical care in current medical practice it's this idea that you know, I am I make an autonomous decision about my healthcare because I fully understand the risks and I fully understand the benefits and I understand those trade-offs and the doctor can explain them to me. And I know that the doctor has explained them correctly because there is evidence proving that this works. 
has been tested in a randomized controlled trial and that has been reported on the particular harms that I might face. So I can make a genuine autonomous decision that I am happy to accept the risks because I believe that they are outweighed by the benefits. In the world of health apps, this doesn't happen. Health apps are poorly regulated, they're poorly governed. Very few of them have actually got evidence showing that they worked. This is because there is currently no internationally agreed upon standard or specific regulatory or accreditation system that is designed to protect individual consumers from their risks. You go on the app store, of which there are 300, more than 300,000 apps, you will see them all making these wild claims about how they can improve your healthcare. Very few of them mention risks. If they do mention risks, it tends to be a disclaimer, which is a legal requirement in order to not be a medical device. And that disclaimer will say, this is not a medical device. Do not take this advice to be medical advice. If you need medical advice, seek a doctor. But it's often buried very small and very, very small, small print. It doesn't take into account other types of harms, in particular harms on people's autonomy, such as their feelings of self-efficacy, um, their self-esteem. If this app has promised me that I would lose weight and I didn't, I must be a failure. If this app has promised me that this will reduce my pain levels, maybe I'm just really sensitive to pain and I'm being a wuss. Look, we don't, we don't have the evidence that these things work. There are exceptions. There are some exceptions. There are some apps that are really well tested. They are reported in public, but that is actually the exception rather than the rule. And so if we don't have that efficacy that they are actually working and we don't know whether the descriptions are accurate, we don't know whether the risks are balanced with the potential benefits, how can somebody really be giving informed consent to use an mHealth tool? And therefore, how can they really be making an autonomous decision that that's what they want to do? And so all of these things are concerning, but we can be positive. You know, Jonathan has shown us that the positive, not everything is terrible. Uh, and I don't want to be the killjoy all the time. I love data and health and apps. And it's why I got into this space in the first place, because I think the potential for transformation is huge. But we need to be questioning and we need to reframe how we position these things. They shouldn't be the center. They shouldn't be the be all on everything. And health apps are not going to be the solution to all ills. And there are a couple of things that we should be making our policy in a strategic level sort of decisions and framing issues in order to help us think a little bit more critically. First of all, we should think about the informational environment or your infosphere as being a social determinant of health. Not everyone is, is given equal access to equal information. Um, not everyone is given equal access to accurate information. Uh, different people have different levels of ability to judge what is accurate and what is trustworthy. And this includes in health apps, some health apps come up with wildly inaccurate information. There's a really great study, you can find it online, which showed, for example, that there are a number of apps which were recommending people who were suffering from very severe psychological issues that they should in fact treat this by drinking hard liquor. So it's not a medically recommended treatment. Um, but people don't necessarily know how to judge those types of information. That's a quite extreme example, but there are more nuanced examples. And potentially we should think about whether in fact the role of data and the role of health apps and the collecting and analytics and algorithms and all of this in the healthcare system is in fact 
P4 medicine, so that personalized predictive participatory type medicine, or whether it is in fact be better targeted at improving population health. And so should we in fact shift the narrative and the level of abstraction or the way we analyze this problem from empower the person to enable the group? And finally, we should be making a buyer beware market. We should make people who are using these health apps better aware of the fact that there are limitations to their use. We should make them aware of what evidence there is for them to work. We should make them aware of the fact of whether this app has been tested on one group of people, but not on another group of people. Um, and we should just be more transparent and we should be holding people who make these health apps accountable to the same standards and holding them accountable to the same standards that we hold other people who make medical devices accountable. And that is it. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Thank you very much. I'm oh, just trying to restart my video. There we go. Thank you, Jess. That was really interesting. Some powerful stuff in there. Um, can I ask you to? Um, oops, I forgot. For one point of clarification, so a, a natural answer to quite a lot of what you've said, or or a start at any rate in responding it, to it, would be to say, look, there's a distinction between devices that give information and devices that give advice. Mm -hmm. And when I go and stand on my bathroom scales, it just gives me information. It, it just doesn't tell me, you know, easy or too heavy, or you shouldn't have had that extra drink or something. Um, now, it, it, do you think that's that's okay? That's harmless. It, it, it's when these systems advise us what to do that they are, as it were, taking things for granted about us perhaps usurping our autonomy and so forth. Would you be happy if the devices we wore on our wrists, etc., just gave information about our heart rate and all the rest and uh, weren't combined with advice? I mean, I think that's an interesting question and it's a really important thing to, to investigate. I think it's partly it's the way that that, con that information, if, you're, if it is information only what's the why were you doing it why were you looking at that particular piece of information and it also comes to jonathan's point about the fact that information can be presented in different ways that uh, alters whether or not it has a harm on a person's autonomy and so if i look at the scales and i'm not particularly bothered how much i weigh i just need to know because i'm i might be you know entering a competition that requires that they know how much how much I weigh then then that's that's one thing if I'm looking at the information because I want to um I do in fact want to lose weight then how that information is presented does make a quite big difference and it's also depends on the informational context and which why has that person looked at it in the first place and what's their ability to understand what it means um so one of the things we've looked at recently is like misinformation online and different people's diff abilities to interpret it. And we've known for a while that pro-anorexia pro -anorexia communities exist on the internet. And these are people who promote uh, anorexia as a lifestyle rather than as a psychological illness. And 
on those types of forums, you see people promoting tips around how do you lose weight and how do you how do you minimize your hunger? And they will have on there things like optimum weights. If people go and still look at information or they're using a Fitbit to tell them how many steps they have taken, even though it's not necessarily telling them what to do, they've still gone seeking that information for a different for a different reason. So informational informational behavioral seeking context makes a difference so um, can i just ask you to clarify that so i mean to, mm. you, you were you've talked quite a lot about how there's a lot of misinformation out there and i think you were suggesting towards the end that there should be some sort of regulation now what you might get from a regulator is here is the government's advice on optimal you know bmi or whatever it is would you be happy if the advice were all, as it were, well authenticated or as well authenticated as it can be, or how much is your objection to the fact that we're receiving this bombardment of advice on how we should be, how we should be and how much is it an objection to the fact that a lot of that advice is bogus? Yeah, and in quite a large part, a reaction to the fact that I think that the information and the advice that people is giving is bogus. Um, it's not just that. I think it's also this, it's more also to do with this idea that we're assuming that just because we've given people information, they know what to do with it and that they in fact can do something about it. Um, and it's particularly this idea that by giving people information, we've shifted responsibility for their healthcare from the healthcare system to that particular individual and the, the issue with that is that if people don't act on it in the right way and their healthcare doesn't their healthcare doesn't improve even if the advice has been like verified but because their context it makes it impossible we've framed that person as a bad user and a person who is become sick on purpose because they didn't do what they wanted or what we wanted them to do um, and if you're constantly reminding people of that nudging them internalizing that value uh, that's really what worries me and, and, and just finally I mean a, a question I, I, I asked um, uh, earlier the how much are these issues new how much are they distinctive of AI systems because there have always been books on health nudging people to behave in particular ways some of them ill-informed and so yeah. forth is the difference simply the fact that it's on your wrist they're nudging you all the time yeah it's 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 a, it's an it's an exacerbation of a problem rather than something that is completely new um and it is because it's, it's exactly like the answer that was given earlier it's all pervasive you can't really escape it all the time and in particular it's it's not even this, these types of behaviors and nudging and towards people's health behaviors isn't even just happening on the people who choose it. So like I can choose not to wear a Fitbit um, because actually I have before and I really didn't like the experience because it made me too aware, but I will still go online and I'll just be scrolling Instagram and I will see a thing that tells me, oh, actually, hey, have you drunk this new skinny tea? Like it's, 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 and possible to avoid and that's partly happening because instagram knows oh right well jess is young and female probably she does care about how much she weighs because society is telling her that she should care about that so i'm going to show her all of these things all the time so you it's it's all pervasive and that's really what makes the difference right thank you very much so i'm going to invite our other two speakers back now they will think magically appear, Jonathan and Karina.
Hello, welcome back. Hello. Hi, Karina. So um, to start with, uh, we've got quite a few questions from the audience that I'm going to get my head round in the next couple of minutes and start throwing at you. But first of all, uh, Jonathan, I'd like to hear your responses to what Jess has said. Sure. Well, um, I think there are maybe some things we, we disagree about, but I, there certainly is a lot of agreement. Um, I certainly agree with the need to regulate these apps if they're going to take such a prominent role. And you know, Jess is hugely well informed about the many, many problems with the apps as they currently stand. So I learned a lot and I found it really very interesting. Um, I suppose one, one kind of general thought I have about this is concerning the worry from moving responsibility from healthcare professionals to the user. I, I do take Jess's concern, but this comes back to something she said at the beginning about this idea of sustainability in healthcare and how much the, the current status quo, if you like, is actually able to meet uh, patient demands that we, that we might want it to meet. So let's take physical activity as an example. Um, the 10,000 step guideline, I agree that there are lots of problems with that, but there are some pretty well validated baselines for um, what a good baseline of physical activity per week should be is 150 minutes in the NHS. And that's been very well researched and very well validated. Now, one of the problems we have trying to achieve a good level of physical activity is that when people go to their GPs, the GPs are having to rely on self-reports of how much exercise people are doing. So if you, let's take a, an mHealth tool out of it. How honest are people giving information to their GP, particularly about valuable things like the amount they drink, the amount of exercise they do? I think it's fair to say they probably overestimated a little bit. That's, of course, going to influence the kind of advice the GP is able to give them. Also noted a couple of years ago, coming back to the physical activity um, example, uh, a group of GPs wrote a letter to the General Medical Council, basically saying that they felt very uncomfortable with the fact that they didn't feel able to uh, prescribe exercise as a medicine because prescribing exercise as a, as a medicine is very different from simply saying, don't follow the guidelines. Um, so we, I wrote a paper about that um, a couple of years ago. Now, one way in which these mHealth tools could fill that gap is A, you've got potentially, and I understand the problems with accuracy here, but you could have a technology which reliably uh, monitors levels of physical activity and potentially fills a gap by providing recommendations based on well-validated uh, baselines of physical activity where there is at present a bit of a lacuna in primary healthcare provision. So I wanna present that as one way in which I think maybe the shift of responsibility from healthcare professional to the, the user or the patient doesn't necessarily always have to be bad because uh, the way that healthcare is currently set up, there are gaps um, and giving people, not necessarily responsibility in the sense of holding them wholly accountable, but giving them a bit of responsibility to say, look, we need your help guys. We need you to monitor some things that we as primary care physicians might not catch on our own because we simply can't maintain a healthcare system sustainably if we were to pay that much attention to everyone. So that's a counter uh, to some of Jess's very important and excellent points. Okay, right. Um, I think I'm, I'm going to move on at this point to questions from the audience. We've got some, some very interesting ones here, um, but I'm going to also give you an opportunity at the end to respond to each other, as it were. So um, a few of these have been directed towards particular individuals. So one for you, Karina, this is from Oliver. 
if the machine, if the human machine interaction cooperation is construed as a single system in and of itself, uh, can you think of that as, I mean, what would you say about the hybrid autonomy that that system might have? So I think, I think the thought there is that you were distinguishing between human and artificial autonomy, but suppose you've got a, if you think of it as a single system, that's quite an interesting question about how to conceptualize autonomy. Yeah, and I think it's an excellent, um, an excellent conceptualization of, uh, of um, the topic. And also just coming back to the wheelchair example, I think this is a very, uh, very good example where in fact we have a technological artifact that is not that is that we usually don't consider separate from the individual who uses the artifact. So um, I would say like a lot of a lot of people who uh, rely on wheelchairs would not consider the wheelchair as a as I mean like obviously something something separate, but like um, they would in their conception of autonomy, it really becomes part of their and uh, you know, how they move around. It becomes part of their life. So I think it's a I think it's a very um, a very interesting way of conceptualizing it. I think there is one um, one thing maybe that we should uh, be wary about, and then maybe this comes back to the idea of control. It is about how much control do we have about this about about the system itself, and how much are we dependent on, let's say, manufacturers and how and like the incentive structures of of private firms and manufacturers. Um, when we when we make use of these systems, but I think it's an it's an excellent idea. So just coming back to this distinction between the human autonomy maybe and the system autonomy, there I would say the system contributes to. I mean I would say still we should uh, understand this uh, because there is a human being involved. Um, we should still then say the system is contributing to the intrinsic uh, to the intrinsic value of human autonomy and. Right. Um, yeah, so, so that so. becomes the main. So when you've got the two together, the main focus becomes the human autonomy and how far the the machine feeds into that. Exactly. So then the the machine basically becomes a becomes a tool of the human uh, rather than a separate agent in itself. Right. Okay. Thank you. Uh, question for you, Jess. Is there a difference between the value laden health app? and the values of the healthcare professionals that patients are currently interacting with. That's from Aurelia. I mean, I take, the, take it the point there is that we're, we might be nudged by health apps, but we might be nudged by health professionals. And do, do, do you see a significant difference there? Well, thank you for the question. That's a great question. Um, often when I talk about uh, AI in, in healthcare, I sort of preface what I want to say by the fact that I do actually think there is a lot of opportunity for these things to make things better um, and I, I uh, and that often when you are the the ethicist in the room you have to be the negative person saying oh this is this is bad this is bad um, and in doing that you automatically set it up to make it so the analog or the existing system is already perfect um, I don't think the existing system is like the values that doctors use right now are necessarily always perfect um, and therefore the apps are always bad a bit a bit like what Jonathan was saying I do I do think that they in fact can be used in ways that are good and helpful for people um, 
my concern is that they are you don't have to be a clinician in order to develop a healthcare app you can just be anyone who knows how to write a line of code and you can just be tech bro in silicon valley who thinks hey i know how to do this and it will make me some money if i make this app and it will nudge people in this way or nudge people in that way and we don't have any uh, oversight over that process we don't know where the idea originated from or who decided that this was how i was going to design it and right through from the way baselines but also through to the way that it manipulates a person's behavior through the way that it presents information um you know it's really hard to go and see on the app store and see who who even made it and therefore follow that that chain of accountability back um and it's really that that concerns me. It's not the idea that healthcare systems or currently and doctors automatically good, um, apps automatically bad, but we are shifting um, in the way these things are and we are losing sight the, of the accountability chain and who to go and say, why did you make that decision? Um, and have you thought about the implications? And who do I, as the person who's used this app and I maybe had a negative outcome, who do I tell that I had a negative outcome as a result of using your app so that I know it doesn't happen to another person. Um, and that's what worries me more than anything. Right, okay, thank you very much. Um, Jonathan, a question for you. Could you say more about the merging of autonomy and privacy and how this promotes an idea of AI exceptionalism? Okay, that's a very interesting question. Um, so the merging of autonomy and privacy uh, again, I'm going to be drawing on a little bit on the book that's behind you, there, Peter, because <laughs> there's an awful lot in Chris's wonderful book. So I urge the person who asked the, the question to, to go and check that out. But something I learned from Chris's book was that many of the, the, the invasions of privacy that are apparent in AI systems, and you know, I think that's also relevant from what Jess has spoken about, these uh, mHealth tools use a huge amount of personal data. Now, the way in which these AI systems tend to uh, influence our decision-making makes a great deal of use of that personal data. So the reason that I think the, the threat that AI systems potentially pose to autonomy is so um, pervasive and effective is that these systems use the data they have obtained by invading our privacy to target very specific forms of manipulative influence at us. So already there's a very close relationship. Um, does it go the other way? I mean, well, in, in medical ethics, generally, I, I mentioned earlier that autonomy and privacy have been treated as slightly separate concepts. That's not wholly true at a practical level, of course, because we talk about informed consent to handing over parts of our privacy. So that there's always been a bit of a link between the two. But for the reasons I've just said, I think that becomes much more, uh, much tighter in the context of AI. With regards to exceptionalism, I suppose, hopefully I've maybe answered a bit of that question in the sense that the fundamental point is going to be that the way in which manipulative interference operates via AI systems is by using the data that has been obtained by invasions into privacy. And I think that's something of a, a new feature of uh, AI today. Thank you. Um, back to you, Karina. From, from Maya, how can the difference between human autonomy and system autonomy be communicated well to the public when we're talking about AI? And uh, she was particularly interested in what Karina said about how feminism might inform our definitions. Yeah, 
So I think a good way to communicating is um, first by understanding what is what is behind human autonomy, and namely that has something to do with uh, moral agency and with uh, responsibility, and then contrast it to what we're actually talking about when we talk about autonomous systems in the context of AI. We're talking about uh, autonomous vehicles, for example, or lethal autonomous weapon systems. Now, arguably, these are infant autonomous systems. Uh, so you could say maybe uh, when AI systems uh, reach them, if they reach the point that we can consider them moral agents, um, then this discussion would need to be changed. But um, feminism comes in because feminism questioned this, uh, this idea of independence. They said it was a very independence and self-sufficiency as a very, was a, used to be a very, still as a very a male-centric idea. And in fact, women, long knew that there was a, that social relationships and uh, emotional relationships are, are important. I mean, I think so do men, but, um, um, but it was certainly not in the forefront of, uh, of analytical philosophy, or philosophy more, more generally. So feminism rejects this idea of autonomy as independence. And in the case of autonomous systems, when we talk about autonomy, that is independence. It is independence from human beings. So I think the, uh, the like here is a really nice connection to be drawn. Try to, if you want to communicate it to the public, um, talk about independence and autonomy, and then show that the concept of autonomy in the human context is much, much richer than just. Thank you very much. That's really interesting. Um, uh, moving on to Jess now, I think this is one for you. How can an individual who this is from Ruth? How how can an individual who feels that they are being subjected to guilt-inducing nudges based on their data self rather than their physical self advocate for themselves, especially if this is via NHS services? Oh, uh, <laughs> I realise you might be walking on thin ice in what you say yeah. here. <laughs> um, I mean that's a, that's a fascinating. Um, that's a fascinating question. I mean, I guess my my first question is, my first point is that if you have become aware of that, you are already in a position to advocate for yourself than, than if you you uh, weren't aware that, that that is actually happening. Um, and you know, you can, you can question it um, and you can say, look, I mean, this is often one of the things that we, you have these discussions around explainability in an in AI and why explainability is important because you can say actually I don't think this is right so if you can say I don't think this is right because of x y and z um you know like the app is telling me that I've got pink hair and actually I have yellow hair like this you can point out the obvious differences um just by the very fact that you're aware uh and you can sort of champion it that way um but the, and I think this is a really interesting argument to bring out and a really good thing to be having a discussion about in public because I think often what happens is you get the reverse of this question and you get this idea that doctors are being presented by patients who say, hey, Dr. Google told me this was what was wrong and you disagree with Dr. Google and I believe Google over you, um, which probably does happen but I also think increasingly the situation that you're describing happens is where they're being told to do one thing um, whether it be a decision making an automatic triaging tool uh, you go do this or you go do that 
or something that is actively acting on what you should do in your healthcare and the patient not feeling as though they have any any um, means of questioning it. Uh, so find the specific differences, point, point them out. If that person or the NHS services is still not listening to you, then find somebody else who can. If, and if that's not possible, then you should be making a fuss um, about it. And, and I same way you do any kind of public advocacy, if you really want to do it, try and do it in public. But can, um, I, yeah. can I just raise a bit of a worry here? I have about the, the very concept of inco- uh, the, the very concept of autonomy. And I, I was I was thinking when Karina was speaking that this this might be an issue. Um, and also, you know, what, what you were saying about the healthcare acts. Now, suppose I go to a doctor and I ask the doctor how I should be treated. And the doctor gives some advice. And I want to know why. Can you explain it? Now, it might be that to explain it in any terms that I can understand will just completely distort, distort the facts of the matter. You know, there's so much research going into this, so much understanding of the physiology and the biochemistry and you know, all sorts of different things. And it's not clear always that getting more information increases your autonomy. Right? You, it, it, for most of us, being getting all the medical information that's relevant would just completely confuse us and it may be that uh, maybe that the concept of autonomy is a rather problematic one you know we, we tend naively to think that we're autonomous when we fully understand the reasons for doing what we do or something like that and we do it with a knowledge of those but actually in any really complex scenario like in medicine we're always relying on the authority of others aren't we and well, the vast majority of us anyway so it is is that a serious problem with the concept of autonomy? Should we just be making do with partial autonomy? I'd just be interested in your views on that, all of you. I, I can maybe speak to that first, because this is something I, I talk a, a fair bit about in, in the book that you so kindly mentioned at the beginning, Peter. Um, I think in medical ethics, it, there's always been this view that, look, of course, we can't expect autonomy to require full understanding of the sort that you're talking about, because you would simply overwhelm patients with information. Um, so the, the concept we tend to invoke in these discussions is that of material information. So the, the kind of autonomy that's required for informed consent requires that the patient understands information that is material to the treatment decision. The then very controversial question is, well, how do we define information that's material uh, from information that's not. And that conversation has been largely carried out in the legal domain. And in the past five years or so, we've um, had quite big changes in the, the law in, in England, at least, uh, regarding how we define information that is material to treatment decisions. So I don't think it's an insurmountable problem. I don't think a concept of autonomy for use in medical ethics, or for that matter, in, in AI, has to be wedded to this idea of full understanding, because of course that's not obtainable. But that doesn't get us around all the very, very difficult questions. And we're certainly seeing this play out in medical law in England today. Um, and I don't think the discussions about that are, are over. Right. Jess, do, do you want to add anything on that? I mean, I will largely, largely agree. I think, I think it's complicated. I think um, one of the things that we mentioned in the paper, which I haven't mentioned, is also um, it's 
sort of a more meta version of autonomy and it, like making an autonomous decision to give over the decision-making ability to someone else is still an autonomous decision as is the autonomous decision to not want to know so I don't want to know that you've predicted no. that this has happened and this has happened um and I still think that's worthwhile so like Jonathan just said I don't think it's an insurmountable problem I think it becomes problematic when we don't look at the way it's potentially being harmed critically um so, so, and there I take it there would be a crucial difference between deferring to an authority that's well authenticated and, you know, rightly respected and so on, basically going to the doctor, as opposed to taking your advice from some app that's been written by someone in Silicon Valley who may or may not be reliable. Uh, uh, yeah at the moment yes i don't say that that it's not impossible that we could get to a point where we have enough trust and reliability in in um the other definition of like autonomous um autonomous decision making uh, that we would feel comfortable doing that and also we should be aware like the point i made earlier not all doctors are fantastic all the time <laughs> so we should we shouldn't like make this this distinction between the always perfect human and the always imperfect algorithm the, those those two extremes don't exist but we should be critically uh, analyzing both yeah i mean presumably it's not impossible that we get to a stage where technology is in general more reliable than the doctor precisely because the very best decision making algorithms can be put into it and reproduced all over the place in lots of help handheld devices yeah, completely, completely possible from from especially from a, um, a very cold technical definition. Um, yeah. I, I, it's, there are many other which we don't have time to talk about today, but there are many other aspects of healthcare like empathy and my ability to understand you as a person, which an algorithm cannot replicate. But from a purely technical perspective, yes, that's true. Yes, actually, that the, the, Anna asks a couple of questions. Well, I mean, one of which is rather resonant there. How does this metric cultural obsession of the empowered quantified self converse with the almost mystical discourse around wellness? That's an interesting one. And can the researchers um, speak to the gender specific gap in algorithm design for healthcare? Um, the well-known fact that most algorithms apparently are based on male data rather than female data historically. Do you have anything to? Uh, oh, to me or did, does Anna? I don't well, know, or Karina? Want to jump in? Sorry, my EduRom connection is somewhat choppy, so I only oh. understood half of the question. So maybe I'll pass it over to, to Jess and then from okay. that, uh, make a comment after. Uh, so the, the, first, the first question about, about this sort of forever quantified, quantified self and the mythical e e example of wellness, I think those two things go hand in hand because the wellness in this industry is booming on this idea that you can healthify and datify every single aspect of your life. And this was the point I made about this fact that you're made to feel as though you're almost constantly in somewhat sick in the sense that you're always somewhat suboptimal. And there is out there somewhere an optimal version of you that you can achieve if you continue to listen to this app and then this app and then this app or um, you know I'm going to follow this influencer and they're going to tell me that I should only 
drink kale um and then there the, uh, if i do yoga five times a day but then at the same time you'll have the a different person on a different app telling you that you should uh go running 100 miles a day and only eat red meat like there the, it is constantly over bombarding people and that is what's driving the profit making model um and i think we should be very conscious of that and we should accept the fact that maybe we don't want to like healthify or quantify every single aspect of our lives you know how do you how do you quantify the very beneficial um from a health mental health perspective and therefore a physical health perspective things like having a good conversation with a friend um or laughing these are all things that are aspects of the human existence that make you feel better but we shouldn't necessarily be quantifying them um and I think we should be therefore very critical of this idea that you can quantify every aspect of wellness. No doubt. Right. Well, thank you very much indeed. Uh, that's been a really interesting and enlightening discussion. Lots of food for thought there. I, it's just a shame we have to stop because of this. <laughs> I think I feel we've raised a lot more questions than we've answered, but uh, it, it, it gives us uh, all a, an, an appreciation of what a complex and multifaceted topic this is. Um, the session's been recorded. It will be added to the very rich collection of AI ethics resources that we're building up at Oxford. As I said at the beginning, you can find links to past and forthcoming events and a growing set of recordings and podcasts all categorised by topic if you go to the philosophy faculty homepage and click on the ethics in AI link. Before saying goodbye, I'd like, like to thank Wes Williams, Vicky McGuinness, and the whole team at Torch for helping us with the organization and technical arrangements for this seminar. They've made everything much easier for the four of us, uh, and this is hugely appreciated, so thank you. Uh, thank you very much to the speakers, of course, uh, Karina, Jonathan, and Jess. Um, it's been really, really interesting, uh, interesting what you've said, and I'm sure our uh, listeners will have enjoyed that. Thank you, our listeners, for watching. Oh, listeners for watching. Our watchers for watching. <laughs> our viewers, uh, especially those who ask questions. Um, they're really interesting questions. It's a shame we didn't have longer to, to spend on them. Do look out for our future events from the link I mentioned. Uh, thank you again and goodbye. <laughs>